0: And that you care deeply for us. But also, God, I pray that as we dig into your word, I pray specifically, Lord God, that we see how your power is still at work in our lives. God, I thank you that we don't simply serve a risen Savior, God, but we serve a Savior who is active in every aspect of our life. We love you, Father, and we thank you, and we commit this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So recently, I had the privilege of hearing a speaker who happened to be a Christian share a presentation in a secular setting. Uh, During the presentation, the speaker uh, challenged the audience to shift from a mindset where they are actively saying, I have to, to now saying, I get to. He specifically said, you and I are called to not operate in life based upon what we have to do, but we are called to operate based upon what we get to do. Accepting the reality that I get to has, has, a, has a ramification that I believe will transform our life. Uh, so many of us are lacking joy, we're lacking passion, we're lacking purpose because you and I are overwhelmed with what I have to do. I have to go to work tomorrow. Sorry for reminding you that. I have to get the kids ready, I have to do my homework, I have to wash clothes, I have to fold clothes, I have to pay my bills, I have to pay the note. And instead of approaching life that way, the speaker challenged us to see life through the lens of the blessings that God has for us. Because in this life, we don't simply have to do things, in this life we get to do things. I get to go to work to provide for my family. I get to care for my kids because the Lord has blessed me with them as a gift from him. I get to pay my bills because God has blessed me with the resources that I need to, be, uh, to, to, to take care of everything I need. I get to wash my clothes because God has blessed me with everything I need. When we operate by the mindset of I have to, we're focusing on a painful obligation. But when we say I get to, we speak to the fact that we are... We have purpose and opportunities that have been given to us from God. Some of us live life focusing on what we have to do, while others of us focus on focus on how we get to do something. When I consider this difference, this uh, this duality, this uh, this. Uh, This this reality that some say I have to, others say I, I get to, it reminds me of what is going on in the 12th chapter of John. And it specifically gives us a model for how we should approach this issue of worship in our lives. When we have I get to attitude, it allows us to have a privileged mentality that the Lord has been good to us and the Lord has allowed us to experience things that many people do not get to experience. This morning, I don't have to come to church. I get to be a part of God's family. I I don't have to praise God. I get to praise God. I don't have to tithe. I get to support the ministry. I don't have to serve. I get to invest in our kids. I don't have to sing, but I get an opportunity to praise and worship my Lord and Savior. When I think about those two It reminds me that there are two competing attitudes that are usually in the church. Because of God's grace, I get to worship. Because of God's grace, I get to be in community with others. Because of God's grace, I get to tell others about the love of Christ. I get to. I don't simply have to. I get to. And in the text, we see a person who lives her life based upon this principle Mary, in our text, has an attitude where she gets to worship the Lord. She gets to bless God. She gets to do something extravagant for the Lord. I want you to go with me, and I want to turn our attention to verse number one. And we see first, we see the group waiting at the table. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave him a dinner Uh, There, Martha served, and Lazarus was one reclining at the table. Uh, The first two verses of the chapter tell us about a hopeful convocation. A convocation is a gathering of people for a specific purpose. The time of the uh, convocation was six days before Passover. The location of the convocation was in Bethany, the home of Lazarus and his sisters. But the occasion of the convocation was a celebratory dinner. We see that in the text, they are celebrating a person moving from death to life. Because we don't have time to go through the entire chapter, uh, chapter 11 and chapter 12. uh, I want to encourage you this week to go back and read chapter 11 because it makes chapter 12 that much more full. In verse number 2, it tells us that Lazarus is reclining at the table in Greek. This is anakanami. This word means uh, to be reclining, but it is the, in the present continuance tense. Verse 2 literally says Lazarus is reclining, but you can substitute Lazarus is currently living. Lazarus is currently enjoying life. The one who was dead in chapter number 11 is now alive in chapter number 12. At the beginning of chapter number 11, we see that Lazarus is named as a person who is gravely ill as the passage continues we see that Lazarus is the one who was sick unto death and then by verse 11 in chapter number 11 Lazarus has died when you continue to read the passage it is it is so beautiful because Jesus allows him to pass away but when Jesus gets to the home Jesus shows compassion Jesus shows care and Jesus literally weeps over the loss of his life Let's us know that God cares about us. Let's us know that when people uh, die, it is significant to the Lord. But, but when Jesus uh, speaks to them, chapter number 11, he speaks to them and he reminds them that, that death here for the believer is not the end. Jesus takes chapter number 11 to communicate that he is not just life, but he is the resurrection and the life. Jesus takes chapter number 11 to paint a beautiful picture of the death that he would die, but also of the death that every believer will die, that we will die. This body will be broken down. This body will no longer cease to exist, but God will raise us up again because he is the resurrection and he is the life. When you look at the text... Uh, Jesus is sitting with a man in chapter number 12 who was dying in chapter number 11. In chapter number 11, the people were mourning, but in chapter number 12, the people are rejoicing. The group that had lost hope in chapter number 11 was given hope in chapter number 12. Some some would say, well, 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 preacher man, how can this happen? It happened because God is able to turn around any situation in your life. Before I get to worship, I just want to encourage somebody this morning that no matter how bad the situation, God is able to turn it around. No matter the number of sleepless nights, no matter the report from the doctor, no matter how low the bank account, no matter the bad report, God is able to turn things around. One of my favorite scriptures is Psalm 30, verse 11. It says, God can turn your mourning into dancing. And God can take away the clothes of mourning and he can clothe you with joy. When you consider the text, I am firmly convinced that the folks in chapter 11, the two sisters who were mourning the loss of their brother, could have never imagined a scenario where they would be at the table eating with their brother. It's a good encouragement for us because some of us have gotten to a place in our life where we have concluded that life will never get better than it is right now. We've concluded that my family is always going to be dysfunctional. We've concluded that I'm always going to struggle financially. I'm always going to live paycheck to paycheck. I'm always going to get bad news from the doctor. I'm always going to feel alone. I love the text because it reminds me personally that God is able to turn around any circumstance or situation in my life. So first, we see them waiting at the table, but then secondly, we see someone worshiping at the table. Verse 3 says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment and made, made from pure nard, and she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance, fragrance of perfume. Uh, What stands out to me in the text is really Mary's attitude. Uh, In the culture, we got to understand that a person uh, usually would wash themselves before a meal. But what happened in chapter number 12 is totally uncommon. It is totally out of the ordinary. Instead of Jesus washing his hands and his feet, Mary abandons her pride and she washes his feet. Um, We got to understand in the culture, dealing with a person's feet. Uh, would, would be seen as demeaning, although there was even a uh, slavery in the context, they would not even ask a slave to touch a person's feet. but Mary humbled herself. She went lower than a slave and she washed his feet. She takes it a step further and not only washes his feet but she takes down her hair and she washes and wipes it clean we must what we what we must understand here in the text is for for a woman to be covered is not just an Islamic thing. For her hair to be covered was a cultural thing in the Middle East. For a woman to let down her hair was to be totally unusual and uncommon. When we think about her sacrifice, here's what it says. It says I don't care what anybody thinks. It says I don't care what anybody has to say. In the past Mary was known for sitting at the feet of Jesus but now she is known for giving praise and honor to the Lord. I love the text because it gives me an opportunity to make the point that when Mary approached Jesus, she didn't approach him simply wanting to receive something, she approached Jesus wanting to offer something. Uh, I- Any time I see this in Scripture, um, I try to ask these questions because I think it's, it's too important for us not to ask. And you've heard these questions before, but I'm going to continue to ask you these questions because they're important. When you came to church today, what was your mindset? Were you coming to receive something, or were you coming to offer something? Was your attitude this morning that I'm coming to hear good music, I'm coming to hear a pretty decent message from the pastor, I'm coming uh, to get some good fellowship? At the old location, It was I was coming to get donuts, but we don't have donuts anymore. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> well, when you woke up this morning... Were you coming to bring an offering to the Lord? I'm not talking about money. I'm not talking about something financial. I'm talking about were you coming today with an attitude and a mindset that I'm coming to give something to God? I'm coming to praise. I don't care who's singing. I don't care what song. I'm coming to praise. I don't care what Thomas is talking about. I'm coming to praise. I don't care if we have a fill-in preacher. I'm coming to praise. I'm coming to worship. I'm coming to give an offering to God. When When I think about those questions, it really does challenge me personally how different would my life be if I lived with that mindset? If I lived asking myself the question, What am I giving back to God? Like, how am I bringing an offering to God? Once again, I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about my life. I'm talking about giving God my best. I'm talking about not caring what people think. I'm talking about not caring what people have to say. I'm talking about living a life that is so uncommon, that is so focused, that I don't care what anybody has to say or think about my commitment to Christ. How different would my life be? For us, we, we got to understand that the English word uh, "worship" uh, comes from an old English word uh, that is really the word "worthship," meaning worship is a declaration of what we value. When we see something as value, valuable, we worship it. When we don't see something as valuable, we don't worship it. So for me, I'm constantly reminding myself that that worship comes after a divine appraisal. Traditionally, an appraiser determines the value of a property. If you want to sell your house, you must first get it appraised to determine the value. If you want to sell your jewelry, you must first get it appraised uh, to see if it was worthy of a certain amount of money. The appraiser looks at the strength, but the appraiser also looks at the weaknesses to determine its value. So for us as a church, we got to understand worship fundamentally is your appraisal of God. I'm going to say it again. Your worship is your appraisal of the Lord. If your appraisal is low, then worship will be low. If your your appraisal is high, your worship will be high. Usually when we think about the word worship, we're thinking about a, a genre of music, right? Praise is the fast music. Worship is the slow music. I'm not talking about uh, how loud you sing or how much you give. I'm talking about how valuable is God in your life? When you see God, when you think about the Lord, when you think about the creator of the universe, what value have you attached to God? Now, Now, here's the truth. Not only... Have we a natural inclination to worship something? All of us worship. All of us worship something. We got we to gotta go ahead and conclude that, that every one of us is hardwired to worship something. If you are not worshiping God, you're worshiping something. That is a fact that you cannot disagree with. But not only are we hardwired to worship, every one of us wants to be worshiped, although we don't deserve it. I'm glad my wife isn't here, but I'm sure y'all will tell it after church, but let let me let me let me pick up something around the house. Let me wash some dishes. Let me fold up some clothes. And I'm like No no no. Here's here's the thing, I'm like, you see what I did right there? <laughs> you you saw those clothes that were, you know, they were all messy, you saw I did that right? You know I' Because essentially, I want her to worship me. I want her to tell me, Thomas, what you just did was valuable. What you just did was significant. And I'm waiting on her to, to praise me a little bit, right? Women, don't act like we're the only ones who do this. Don't, don't, don't let y'all, amen, amen. Don't, don't, don't let y'all show up with a new hairstyle or a new dress. And you you will walk laps around the house until you get worshipped. Thank you, my brother. I'm glad we can be honest. right? All of us want to be worshipped. All of us want to be seen as valuable. All of us want to be praised and applauded. Every single one of us. Now, here's the truth. None of us are deserving of worship. God is deserving of worship. And what people worship is a good indication of what is most valuable to them. Instead of Mary acting as if God owed her something, she viewed her life as being in debt to God. It's unfortunate that many of us we live our lives, if we're true, operating as if God owes us something, right? We operate as if God owes me the blessing. Um, it's it's amazing when you when you look at uh, writers and. Sometimes writers kind of bash the millennials for having uh, this entitlement mindset. And I can't speak to that. Well, here's what I can't speak to. Church culture or church folks or Christians, we struggle with an entitlement mindset. We, we struggle with believing that God owes us something. Now, we would never say it because to say it, um, is to seem less than pious and holy. Like, we wouldn't sing a song based upon, Lord, you owe me something, but in the deep recesses of our heart and in our mind, we're operating as if God owes us something. We think that God owes me a better life, that God owes me a better marriage, better gifts, better clothes, better cars, a better career, better friends. We feel like God owes us something because we have fallen into the trap of thinking that what God has already done for us is not enough. I, I want to say this, like, do I want a bigger house? Yes. Do I want a bigger, nicer car? Yes. Do I want more money in my account? Yes. But if I want those things to the, to the detriment of acknowledging what God has already done, then I am failing. When we operate with that kind of mindset, it reveals that we have little value for what God has already done for us. In the text, Mary's disposition, her, her, her mindset, her heart does not allow her to get caught up in a, a, a mentality where she felt as if God owed her something. But in chapter number 11, after the Lord revealed who he is and after the Lord revealed what he was able to accomplish, her natural response was, I got to worship him. I got to give God my best. Like, once she saw who God is, and once she saw what God was able to accomplish in her life, she says, I must worship the Lord. And for me, it's, 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 it's amazing to me when you look at, uh, that's why we preach through the scriptures, right? In chapter number 11, it was, Lord, if you hadn't been here. It was, Lord, you, if you hadn't just been here, my brother would not have died. In chapter number 11, she was running away from the Lord. But in chapter number 12, she's running to the Lord. That's really why we exist as a church. We want to see people who are far from God, who are running away from God, pursuing the Lord. That's that's why we want to celebrate the gospel through worship. When we say that, we're saying, we want to see people who run from Jesus, run to Jesus. We want to see people who are far from God be closer to God. We want to celebrate the gospel because we want to see people enter into a dynamic and a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. We want the the gospel to be celebrated, not by you trying to perform for God. Please don't hear me saying that. Please do not hear uh, me uh, as if I'm saying that you need to do something extravagant this morning to show how much you can praise. I don't think we need to have a a praise off in the aisle this morning. We don't need that. But here's what we do need. We do need a a people who are willing to trust God with what is most important. So first we see them waiting at the table. Secondly, we see them worshiping at the table. But Also we see her family being a witness at the table. Verse 4 says, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money, he used to help himself to what was put in it. My, my grandma would say uh, he was a light finger. He would, he would, he would uh, go into the bag and take some money for himself. When you think about the text, it's, it's reminding us that a witness... Is simply someone who testifies about what they have heard or what they have experienced. And when we consider her witness, first we need to recognize the motivation behind her being a witness. Uh, In the text, you have two motivations. You have the good motivation. We'll get to that later. But also you have the wrong motivation. That's Judas. From the text, it is very clear to see that Judas had one sinful and primary motivation for following Jesus and that motivation was money. Judas says, why in the world would you waste this money? It could be better spent. I, 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 when I look at the text, it is a reminder that those who are not surrendered will never understand somebody who surrendered. Like those who are not generous will never understand someone who is generous. Uh, he didn't understand it because he was in a different place in his life spiritually. When you look at Judas, it is a reminder that he was close to Jesus, but he did not have a real relationship with Jesus. Preachers have said it many times, that close does not count. Like, he was close, he had witnessed the miracles, he had heard the messages, but at, a, at his core, he was a thief, he was a liar, and he was not a part of God's family. When you think about Judas, it is, it is, it is good for us to step away and evaluate Uh, Why are we truly following Jesus? One of my favorite preachers says this, what he says, if you survey the room in every church and ask people why they're really here today, you will get several responses. He says, if you take a critical look at ourselves, uh, some of us are just here for nostalgia purposes. You were raised in the church. On some level, being here, it makes you feel better about yourself. It, it, it connects you with your values, it connects you with your upbringing it connects you with grandma who's no longer here, it connects you with your family who's not around here, it, it makes you happier it makes you um, uh, more more jipper because it's, it's just nostalgic uh, other people, we just come to church because we think that, that being here today gives us a, a bargaining chip with God we think that, you know I got, a, I got the big meeting coming up, I got the big uh, big test coming up, I got, you know, I'm trying to get in med school, I'm trying to, you know, uh, trying to get married before I leave UGA, I'm trying to, you know, do some great things. Like, I, I just need a bargaining chip with God. So, so to get a bargaining chip, I'm going to come to church so that, you know, maybe at the end of the day, God owes me something. When you look at the text, her motivation was not a bargaining chip, her motivation was not nostalgia. Her motivation was real because she saw what God had given to her, and that was her brother. She saw that God was in control. In chapter number 11, when she heard how Jesus taught about being the resurrection and the life, she understood that this was the Messiah, the one who God had promised to redeem Israel. Verse 7, it says, Jesus said, leave her alone so that, you may, uh, so that she may keep it. Uh, for the day of my burial, for the poor will always be with you, but you, you do not always have me with, have, have me with you. Uh, in the text, uh, Mary was happy to give something to Jesus because she understood what Jesus was going to ultimately give to her. When we worship, he, he, here is the, the, the reality of our worship. Her, her worship was her response to what God was going to give to her to the cross. Her worship was not about how she could uh, become better, how she could uh, be promoted, how she could get a bigger title. Her worship was focused on, since God is going to sacrifice for me, since God is going to give me his best, he's going to lay down his life for me on the cross, then I'm going to give God my best. It's not about money. For some of us today, money is not an issue for you. You got a lot of money, you can give it away. That's fine. For some of us, the the issue is your time or the issue is your talent or the issue is your career or the issue is your family. I don't care what it is. Do not leave here thinking that it is this about money. It is about what is most important to you in her life, in your life. In the text, the, the perfume that she gave would have been a family heirloom that she passed on to her children. Like, for, for in the text, uh, the, the, the gift that she gave the Lord was a gift that would have been the most valuable thing in her life. And she was willing to give it. When we get to this point, like some, some of us, especially me, we don't, we don't want to deal with the issue of the text, but the issue in the text is reminding us that to follow Jesus will cost you something. Like, you can never pay for your sins, you can never save yourself, you can never do enough to earn God's favor. But here's the truth, following Jesus is going to cost you something. In Luke 9, Jesus says, follow me, right? But then he also says, take up your cross and deny yourself. This Christian life that we are called to is not a life of ease. It's not a life of comfort. It's not a life where we just show up once a week to check off the box. It is a life that is going to cause us to sacrifice the things that are most important to us. I think we would all do well to ask ourselves, like, what is most important this morning? For some of us, it's our bank account. For others, it's our position. For others, it's our relationship. For others, it is our sexuality. For others, it is our racial identity. For others, it is our gender identity. For others, it is our career. Like, what is it that is most important to you? Now, here's the bigger question. Are you willing to give that to God? Are you willing to trust God with the areas of your life that are most important? Are you willing to trust God, not simply in word, but are you willing to sacrifice all to the Lord? When we look at the text, we must realize that God doesn't simply hear this. God doesn't simply want something from you, but God wants something for you. What God wants for you is a relationship that will transform your life. Verse 10, it says, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on, on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Here's how we know that the family was a witness. In verse 10, the text tells that the chief priests not only wanted to kill Jesus, now they wanted to kill Lazarus. When I think about it, I, I can see how they wanted to get at Jesus. Well, why in the world would they desire to kill Lazarus? When we read the Gospels, we do not find anything outstanding about Lazarus. Uh, he was never recorded as doing anything worthy. Um, he didn't make a profound confession like Peter. He doesn't preach a powerful sermon like Paul. Yet Lazarus is one of the greatest witnesses of the church. Why is he a great witness of the church? Because Lazarus is a witness, as, is, he is a witness to the truth that God is able to transform every aspect of your life. What made Lazarus a witness was not... What he did for God, what made him made him a witness was what Jesus did for him. He wasn't genius, wasn't personally accomplished, but what made him significant was the testimony of a changed life. That's why I love I love being in community with you guys. Because hopefully where you are today is so much closer it is so much more committed it is so much more mature than when you first got here if we are just coming together to check off the box to just you know do good church together and have a good time that is not the purpose of why we're here but we are here to be transformed into the image of christ we think about worship that there's so much there's so many reasons why we can worship God. He created us. He's pursuing us. He died for us. He forgave us. He brought us into his family. He gave us purpose. He gives us a plan. He protects us. Here's the truth. All of, these, all of these are great reasons to worship God. But if you don't get to a place where you understand that God wants to use your life as a witness, all those other reasons don't matter. When you look at your life, here's a question I asked myself this week. When I looked at Lazarus in his life and how people wanted to kill him because other people were believing in Jesus because of him, the question I got to ask myself is, like, Thomas, who wants to get rid of you because people are believing in Jesus? Not that I'm saving anybody. I can't save anybody. But because of the witness of my life, like, who wants to get rid of me because Jesus is actively using my life as a witness? Close with this illustration. In a court of law, uh, evidence tampering is a big issue, no matter if you're a prosecutor or a defendant attorney. People are always trying to uh, lessen the credibility of the evidence. When you think about Lazarus, you think about his life. They wanted to kill Lazarus. They wanted to get rid of Lazarus because they wanted to get rid of the evidence. They wanted to get rid of the proof That Christ is able to change every aspect of your life. As your pastor, I want you to know this. We will never get to a place where we are judging you or we are measuring your morality. But as your pastor, I want you to know that God has an expectation for you to grow. God has an expectation for you to take steps of faith. God has an expectation for you to be stronger today than you were this time last year. God wants to use your life as a witness, but here's the truth. Many of us are not growing in that relationship because we don't understand that God wants to use our life for his glory, but also to fulfill the mission that he has for us. So here are my points of application, and I'm done for us, done with us today. Number one. When you think about this text, you coming up, Chris. When you think about the text, the first thing that we got to remember is, God is able. I don't know who needs to hear that this morning, but I want you to know that God is able. That God can change any part of your life, not just your life in eternity, but God can change your life today. As a Christian, God desires that your life. Is lived in victory. Victory is not getting a new car, it's not about getting a new job, it's not about something tangible like that. Here's what victory looks like victory looks like you can walk in freedom, victory looks like you can walk in forgiveness, victory means that you can live a life that points others to Jesus, victory means that you don't have to be a preacher to have an impact. Victory means that you can make disciples. Victory means that your life can have significance and purpose and impact because God is able to make good on his word. When God says he has called us to be the light of the world, he's not expecting you to go out and do it in your own strength, but God says, I'm going to give you exactly what you need. I'm going to empower you by my spirit to do exactly what I've called you to do. So first, got to see, God is able. But then secondly, we must always remember that God is worthy. God is worthy of all of our our honor, all of our glory, and our praise. We say that often in the church, but here's what that means. The most valuable person in my life is God. The person who, who desires my best who desires my all, who desires everything I have, is God. I don't want to give my best to my job. I don't want to give my best uh, to this world, my, my my career, my sorority. I don't want to give my best to the world and not give my best to God. Because ultimately, God is desirous of our worship. And then lastly, not only does, should we always remember that God is able and God is worthy. Lastly, we must remember that God wants you to be a witness. You are the evidence. You are the opportunity that, some, that, that someone this week will have to hear the good news of Jesus. God has planted you wherever you are, whatever job you're in, whatever neighborhood you stay in, whatever dorm you're in, God has strategically planted you there to be a witness. I want you to know that that's a huge responsibility as a Christian. But being a witness is not just for the preacher, but being a witness is for every single believer. I just want to get everybody on the stand as we get ready to close. I think it's super important um, anytime we get to, this, um, get to this passage or get to a passage like this, to give folks an opportunity to respond. So my first invitation today is is this. When you look at the text, Judas was close, but he was not a Christian. He had heard the message, he had been around the people, he had spent time with Jesus, but he was lost for eternity because he was not saved. So if I can get every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here this morning, and you would say, preacher like I've been close for a long time I've gone to church, I've heard the messages I've sung the songs, I've been around but I've never placed my faith in Jesus I've never come to a place in my life where I have fully surrendered my life to the Lord and today I want to do that if that's you this morning I want you to lift up your eyes and look at me, just me and you talking that's you Anybody here who wants to surrender to Jesus for the first time? Thank you, my brother. Secondly, someone here who says, you know what, preacher? I've been valuing things in this world more so than I value God. And really, that's everybody in here. I want you to know That God loves you. And that's why Christ came to die for you. But just because you're struggling with the sin and just because you're struggling with the affections of your heart, please don't stay there. Next week, we're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about how God is actively shaping our desires and our thoughts. If that's you this morning, I want to encourage you to pray that God would change the desires of your heart so many times we think that God just gives us whatever we desire but I think the appropriate interpretation is God will give you he will place inside of you desires in your heart so i to pray for us and then thirdly somebody here today who says you know what preacher I've been here for a while and I want to make this my church home that's you this morning, to lift your eyes and look at me too. Amen. Thank you, sister. Thank you, sister. Thank you, brother. We pray for us. Father, we thank you for this time. God, as we get ready um, to go, we're going to sing just a little bit. And I pray as you, as we sing, I pray that you will continue to meditate, that we will continue to meditate on what you've told us. God, I pray that you would help us to continue to make points of application. God, I pray that you would help us to see every area of our lives that needs to be changed and transformed. God, I thank you that the change that you desire for us is not based upon our own strength. God, but that change is based upon your spirit. God, so as we sing, I pray, God, that you would really minister to our hearts. We love you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.